The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Well, this is a good old hearty challenge, isn't it? When John the Apostle says to Christians throughout history, this is how we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Monday morning rolled around last week and I popped back into the office and oh my, did I read that right? This is an absolutely intense and terrifying passage. Or am I the only one who reads it this way? I don't know if I just speak for myself, but I'm all in for Easter, for me, for our world. I mean, Easter means that everything sad has come untrue, and who doesn't want that? It's—but it's—it's also like a building retrofit. It rewires us. It replaces the old with the new. And so this is the question. If I follow Jesus, do I have to actually do what he did? Do I have to love the type of people that he loved? Do I have to be a living sacrifice, giving up certain comforts and embracing radical humility? Yes, we do. I don't think there's any other way to read this scripture in 1 John than point blank. I think it's pretty easy to say that Jesus Christ was actually on this mission, and we can see this throughout the Gospels. He loved people in action and in truth. One author I read this week said that the mission of God is one of loving people, places, and things to life. It sounds similar to what we're up to here at First Hamilton in partnering with God in the renewal of our city and world. And we read this through the Gospels. On page 2, we see Jesus loving not just with words, but with actions. He heals. He provides. He feeds. He dies. He rises. He is the perfect example of loving in action. But Jesus isn't just a person to admire. As one Bible scholar uh, mentions, the self-sacrifice of Jesus is not just a revelation of love to be admired. It is an example to copy. This is the invitation for us today. Copy Jesus. John puts it plainly for us. How do we know what love is? We look at him. We see what he did. This is our mission As former pastor of this congregation, Ken Herfst, said often, the church doesn't have a mission. God has a mission, and he invites us to join him in it. But is this too hard? Is this a denial of life's joys and comforts that's too radical for ordinary people like us? No, I don't think that it is. I believe that in God's kingdom, we are able to both give and enjoy, and it's not about keeping score. But how does this work? I think it all comes down to see what we see the good life as. If this world is where it's at, if we're the ones who are controlling everything, then laying down our lives for brothers and sisters in need makes no sense. But what if there's another story? What if there's a greater story? 
this is what we're invited into today. And it's an extension of the Easter story. As John uses inviting language to tell us how to love, he says, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He goes on to say, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. I couldn't help but thinking that I uh, am not always uh, getting a passing grade on this whole copying Jesus, loving an action thing. Sometimes it costs too much. Or I get skittish and the opportunity passes me by. Or I choose not to look so that I don't actually see the need. Or I pretend that I don't see the need. It's so much safer to live in my own little reality than it is to open myself up and see the needs of others. Truth be told, I need to pray that Anglican prayer of confession often. It goes like this. Most merciful God... I confess that I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I've done and by what I've left undone. If I'm honest, and I think if we're honest, we find ourselves often taking the long route around the person in need because we don't know how or we don't want to extend ourselves, give, lay down, sacrifice. But other times... When we do reach out, when we do love in action, we also find that our motives are not as pure as we had hoped. Our egos and our images get mixed up in our loving action towards others. We are often in bed with money or power or status, and so we love to be loved. We give to keep up appearances or to appease our own consciences. But the way the scriptures talk about loving action don't seem to have comfortable boundaries around it or proverbial pats on the back. Likely, the passage in the back of the Apostle John's mind here is from Deuteronomy 15, which talks about Israel moving towards the people who are poor and needy in their midst says this, if there is a poor person among your brothers and sisters in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother and sister. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. And this is not just the only passage in the Old Testament that talks about this. We can see throughout the history of Israel that God calls the people of God to be radically open-handed with the things that they have received from him. Notice in this Deuteronomy passage that there are no clear boundaries around loving action. It's not until this point and then you stop. No, freely lend him anything that he needs. I'll never forget the time in my life when I began to intentionally tithe for the first time. And I, uh, it shocked me. It took me a while to get over the, but hold on, God, this is my money that I've worked hard for. I'm still not quite over it. It also is, comes with its fair share of feel-good legalism when I cut that check for 10% and put it in the offering plate. Oh, 
finally I was being a good Christian. But don't ask me for that 11th percent. The last 12 months have also opened up for me, and I imagine many of us, the struggles that we have to constantly battle unconscious bias towards people of racial, ethnic, or social minorities. God, help me see people the way that you see them. I find God inviting me to my knees often because all people are God's image-bearing people, created in love, deserving all love and affection. What am I saying? Whether we recognize it or not, we find ourselves all too attached and influenced by the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of me, which makes John's words to us seem like an impossible challenge. So where can we turn? As broken people on this journey of faith together, after two confessions, how can we see these words by John as an invitation to us? to a better story. The call to lay down our lives to our brothers and sisters in need as actually a beautiful invitation to join God in his mission. Two things we must preach to ourselves. Two things that are in our text this morning. First, God is my shepherd. Second, I lack nothing. God is my shepherd. Psalm 23, one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture pictures God as a shepherd. Shepherd language is all over the scriptures. We know this. It was common for there to be shepherds in those days. But what we often don't think of is that it was actually a very dirty, grueling, dangerous, frustrating job. It was probably the most uh, least flashy profession in the ancient world. It didn't hold an ounce of popularity. You can remember that when David was actually called to be anointed as uh, king of Israel, he was being a shepherd in the field, and, and got the, the prophet Nathan goes through all of the kids, and then, and then he says to, says to Jesse, are there any more? And he says, oh yeah, I forgot about the one that was the shepherd in the field. <laughs> Shepherds are nobodies. But one thing is totally clear, as nobody as shepherds are, they're smarter than sheep. This is why whenever the Bible actually talks about us as sheep, we should actually be incredibly offended by this. The shepherd was the brains of the operation. And to be quite honest, without the shepherd around, the sheep would likely die. They would not be able to provide for even their most basic needs and eventually would find themselves lost, hopeless, and as good as dead. And so without a shepherd to lead the flock, life would be hazardous, if not impossible. And so the Bible intentionally, time and time again, talks about God as our shepherd, God as our leader, as our provider, as our protector. But he isn't just a shepherd. John's gospel, Jesus calls himself the kalos shepherd, the good shepherd. The good shepherd, Jesus tells us, is a shepherd that has an intense love and interest towards the well-being and flourishing of the flock. Everything that the sheep have, the shepherd provides. Safety, food, water, shelter. Psalm 23, the the shepherd's psalm, tells us that he makes me lie down. He leads me by quiet waters. He guides me along the right paths. 
intimately connected to our loving action towards others is whether or not we see Jesus as the good shepherd. If you know that Jesus has an intense love and interest in your flourishing, it'll change the way you love others. Because this much is true. Jesus is our shepherd, and he is the good shepherd, and he knows the flock, and he's willing to do anything and everything to keep us safe and help us flourish. Look at the cross, which is a living example. Christ laid down his life for us. And this is how we know love. But Christ isn't just the good shepherd. In him, we lack nothing. Because of Jesus, we lack nothing. This week, I found myself repeating this opening line of Psalm 23 in my head often. And truth be told, this week I had a difficult week mental health-wise. I, I struggle with anxiety at times, and I say at times because it's not often, but it is at times. And I found myself this week uh, battling anxiety as I looked out on leading a church through another lockdown, coming back from vacation to doing online church again, and wondering where the finish line is in everything. And I found that the further and further I got away from repeating, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The further I got away from that, the further I found myself hanging on other more anxious storylines. And I wondered in my journal what would happen if I really did believe that Christ, in Christ, I don't lack anything. We don't lack anything. I mean, I do believe it, but I know that there are truths in Scripture that go deeper in our hearts when we spend time meditating on them. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. In Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount, he essentially challenges us to see ourselves as the birds and the flowers. How wonderfully clothed and splendor and magnificence they are, and they don't worry or toil or spin. They know that God provides everything that they need. This goes further than our possessions and our money and speaks to our identities. As the Apostle Paul tells us, we are in Christ. That's an identity statement. And Christ has laid down his life for us. And that's a moment in history. And since Christ died for us, that means that those who find themselves in Christ are significant, special, loved. He makes us so. Isaiah 40 tells us that God gathers us to himself and keeps us safe in Christ. We have everything we need. We have the identity of the beloved children of God. We have the provision of the Most High. Best yet, this doesn't come to us because of our performance or because we hold some standard of holiness. It's by grace. It's guaranteed to us in Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean we can simply sit back and relax. The challenge of John's letter is still front and center for us. But it does mean that we don't have to love for approval, but from approval. Not for provision, but from provision. 
I love how the missionary Elizabeth Elliot put it. She said, where does your security lie? Is God your refuge, your hiding place, your stronghold, your shepherd, your counselor, your friend, your redeemer, your savior, your guide? If he is, you don't need to search any further for security. Or Andy Crouch, who takes this question of security even further, comparing our lives to a triple-tested safety rope on a high ropes course. He says, The safety rope makes visible the essential wager of the Christian life. Are we ultimately vulnerable? And isn't that the fear when we open ourselves to love and action, that we will lose everything that, that we give, that, that we will open ourselves to too much vulnerability? And he continues, Is everything at risk? With no belays, no harnesses, no one holding the rope at the other end? Or? Or is our very life held by the one who's gone even to the dust of death and returned? who's conquered the ultimate source of vulnerability, and even now ultimately holds absolutely secure the tether of your life. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then everything is at stake. Everything is at risk. And we, Christians, are the most to be pitied. But if, in fact, he has been raised, it changes everything. This is our wager. See, on the one hand, our cultural moment tells us that we are most free, most joyful when we are in control, when we have both hands ten and two on the steering wheel and we make the calls, we control the bank accounts. But is this actually true? Past 12 months, I think, have shown us that control is an illusion. Andy Crouch shares that there's a different storyline. The Bible tells us that it is possible, even true, that the only real safe and joyful and peaceful and satisfied place in our life is when we find ourselves in the hand of Jesus. This is the attitude of love in action. It tells us that the more we open ourselves to loving others in generosity, compassion, the more we move towards the hurting, the vulnerable, the minorities— the more secure we will see that we are in the arms of Jesus. It's the paradox of the Christian life. The more we open ourselves, the more we are filled. The more we give, the more we receive. So why did I spend so much time talking about our own relationship with Jesus on a sermon all about loving action towards others, because it hit me this week that love is primarily not an action, but it's first an attitude. It's first an attitude. As one author I read this week put it, love is the willingness to surrender. And I'll just pause there on the quotes further, but love is the willingness. Willingness is an attitude. It's an attitude. Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value to in, of, in your own life to enrich the life of another. Are you willing to surrender that? What if God is your shepherd? What if in him you lack nothing? 
What if the more you open yourself, the more you'll be filled? Most of the time, it's our attitudes that get in the way of our imagination and our action. And most of the time, in order to love someone, it only takes three words. How can I help? Love isn't as complicated as we make it to be. Although loving action does take some creativity, especially in the midst of a global pandemic. But mostly it's a willingness to sacrifice of ourselves. To set our needs and desires aside for the sake of another. To confess times when we've failed. To acknowledge injustice and brokenness in our community by our hands. And then move towards these places and be present. Asking these three words, how can I help? Let's pray. Father, as we feel the challenge this morning of Easter, help us to see these, these words of challenge also as an invitation of joy to find our true lives in you, to find our whole identities, our whole lives redefined in the resurrection. Father, help us to see that this um, call to love as you've loved leads us to, to a deeper peace than we have ever experienced before. Father, show us people we can learn from who are doing this well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.